Welcome to this week's uh, segment of the Environmental Justice Report with Janine Moloff. I'm your host and the producer of this show, Janine Moloff. This week on EJR, we're going to discuss how the convergence of police, federal fusion centers, and private security firms hired by corporate polluters work overtime, not only to illegitimately harass... Okay, it seems that... Blog Talk Radio, once again, has fooled me. They told me that we were already on air, and now I just got the 60-second warning. So, once again, I'm sure eventually they will get the hang of it. I can follow simple directions, but once again, we will start again with this this week's segment of the Environmental Justice Report. We're just going to have to wait 37 more seconds, and hopefully it won't cut me off. What can I say? Technology is a marvelous thing, except when it isn't. So you have to have a sense of humor. You just do, especially nowadays. There's just so much insanity everywhere we go. But I'm going to try and bring a semblance of some, again, sanity and a little humor to it. We have 10 seconds left. Well, actually, it says nine now, so I'm not sure. We're going to see in a few seconds, and hopefully they won't cut me off. Three Two, one, blast off. All righty. Welcome to the Environmental Justice Report with Janine Moloff. Again, I will reiterate my previous introduction. This week on EJR, I, Janine Moloff, I'm the producer and your host, discuss how the convergence of police, federal fusion centers, and private security contractors and security firms hired by corporate polluters works overtime not only to illegitimately harass journalists daring to report truthfully about corporate polluters, but it succeeded in classifying journalists as alleged environmental terrorists. You can't make this stuff up. Such abuse of the law has been allowed to flourish with the blessings of both the GOP and the Democrats. So here we go. For many years now, I've denounced the privatization of public services, whether it be schools, public health, or any other services. As a former career public educator, I feel that servicing the public is a, is, is a privilege and it should not be uh, dirtied or sullied with uh, profit, with a profit motive. That being said, the most dangerous privatization or partial privatization has been of policing. This privatization hasn't always been obvious to the general public and it was designed that way to appear as a kind of benign public-private partnership uh, between corporate private security and public police departments at the local, state, and national levels. Post 9-11, this dubious partnership blossomed into the, I'll call it what it is, the stinkweed we now know as fusion centers. Now, unlike fusion cuisine, these fusion centers represent a nearly unprecedented incursion by corporate forces into our publicly funded, tax-supported police departments. Not since the days of the Pinkertons have we seen such partnerships where publicly funded police not only grant extreme privilege to the corporate and billionaire class, but they seem to be taking orders from that same billionaire class. And those of you that are too young or haven't read enough history know who the Pinkertons were. It was private security, and they basically acted as public police, and they roughed up union organizers just trying to survive, among other things. They committed quite a few crimes. 
Now, just the other day, just to give you an example of how nobody can escape this systemic police abuse, U.S. Congresswomen Rashida Tlaib and Debbie Dingell were accosted by police for visiting one of Amazon's warehouses. And this was upon invitation by Amazon, by the company. So, you know, once again, these are U.S. Congresswomen. They were invited. Uh, and this was uh, they were this was an article by Steve Measling. They were invited by Amazon to inspect the conditions in their warehouse in Michigan, and you know they were confronted. The, the, the headline is Representative Tlaib and Dingle confronted by police before finding unsafe conditions at Amazon's house warehouse in Romulus. And so, this is the Amazon fulfillment center in Romulus. Um, apparently, there had been some complaints, anonymous complaints from workers there. The company invited them. They knew about the visit. And yet, according to both congresswomen, Amazon themselves called the police on these two congresswomen right after they arrived just this past Friday evening. And this was as reported by the Metro Times. Another example of corporate abuse of power directed at anyone daring to demand reasonable accountability and transparency. When the authority of two U.S. congresswomen is ignored and they've received a not-so-thinly-veiled threat from police, we have a major problem here. Now, as vital as that encounter was, it's paltry compared to the routine abuse dished out by fusion centers in the name of national security. Besides going after duly elected members of Congress, this unholy alliance between public police and private security has worked to demonize the press and this is where we're going with this piece today, especially any member of the press that dares to stray from that corporate script, happily followed by what are, in my opinion, the stenographers at NBC, CBS, ABC, and of course, Fox. Now, for the past several years, since the revolutionary use of phone videos used with the uh, smartphones, used, during the, used to great advantage during the Ferguson protests, journalists have been savagely attacked by both police and private security. And this show will cover the illegitimate monitoring, not only of environmental journalists, because this is the Environmental Justice Report, but journalists in general. But we're going to start with one environmental journalist in particular. And this was as reported by The Intercept. And the, the uh, report was done by Murtaza Hussein and Aileen Brown. And the, um, the headline, excuse me, had to get a little drink there, Amid terror warnings, railroad industry group passed intel, in other words, intelligence, on environmental journalists to cops. So basically, these private intelligence reports are distributed to these federal fusion centers, and the industries basically are, these corporations are influencing how law enforcement, you know, decides to act upon these alleged threats. So this is about an environmental reporter. His name was Justin McCuka. Mikulta. And he was just doing his job. And then he became very shocked when he scanned through the pages. He said, quote, a friend had contacted me and said that he had found some documents with my name in, it, in them. Uh, he told me I really had to see them for myself, end quote. So Mikulka went through this. And there were descriptions of his work as a journalist. But there were also, they were, his work being described was also uh, right in the middle of security reports that were detailing what they called bloody terrorist attacks and far-right threats. And these were in documents that were prepared by a private railway, railway industry group. And this group shared these reports with law enforcement. Now, 
a series of documents, all right, uh, suggested that law enforcement was really being coached by this private group to view him, McCulka himself, um, as basically a possible, quote, instigator of criminal activity and a threat to railway safety, end quote. And McCulka is an jur- environmental journalist, and he specializes in basically documenting and reporting on the, you know, the hazards of transporting oil by rail. And McCulka was quoted saying, quote, I knew that the industry was aware of my work and didn't like it, but the idea that they, that they were privately lumping me in with terrorists to law enforcement is frightening and shocking, end quote. And, um, you know, McCulka went on and he's quoted as saying, to whom were these documents presented? Am I now on security list being ranked as a threat to the rail industry? It seems like they couldn't challenge what I'm saying on a factual basis, so they resorted to attacking me like this, uh, end quote. So even though the documents didn't actually accuse Mokulka of being a criminal, the documents also, though, warned that um, they warned that basically Mokulka's uh, articles the possible dangers of shipping oil by rail, quote, could inspire criminal activity in the form of protests that disrupt rail activity, end quote. Now, my question very simply is this. Since when is it a crime for a journalist to basically write, especially if the journalist in question has documented the information? Whether it inspires others or not is irrelevant. There's a difference between inspiring and inciting, and McCulka is not incited. So McCulka went on record as saying, quote, the effect of this criminal, oh, I'm sorry, not McCulka, the document went on to describe McCulka's work as, quote, the effect of this criminal activity is to escalate the very risk that McCulka professes he wishes to avoid, end quote, according to one report. And And that report also noted, quote, the potential for derailment escalates dramatically when people and objects are present on track, end quote. So and then this report goes on, again, that was actually put together by a private industry group where this environmental, environmental journalist, Justin Milkalka, was placed in the same category with neo-Nazis and radical Islamic terrorists. And this was basically included in a series of slide presentations. And all of this was prepared, the report and the slide presentations, by this private industry group, otherwise known as the Association of American Railroads, and then otherwise known for the rest of this report as AAR, Association of American Railroads. And the AAR took this report and the slide, and they distributed this to basically their member corporations and to law enforcement, and that's where they crossed the line. They want to distribute it to fellow corporate groups. That's one thing. Distributing it to Law enforcement is another thing altogether. And just to, just to clarify, the AAR is an industry trade group. That's all they are. They have no right to defame this journalist. So then the question arises, who are the police and the fusion centers actually working for? So the AAR describes itself on their own industry trade group website the world's leading railroad policy, research, standard-setting, and technology organization, okay, and end quote. So McCulka, Justin McCulka, was targeted 
for the dubious crime of real journalism as opposed to corporate stenography um, or as opposed to the brain-dead fluff of outlets, again, again, corporate stenography such as the Today Show. And this defamatory information showing how McCulka had been um, basically libeled came from Blue Leaks. Okay? And this is Blue Leaks is a trove of documents that was hacked from so-called fusion centers. All right, it was an anonymous hack. Um, and you have to, I've mentioned the fusion centers, you have to realize the fusion centers are, quote, regional clearinghouses coordinated by the federal government for the purposes of sharing information, end quote. So basically, Blue Leaks, this was a hack. It hacked information from the fusion centers, and then that information was disseminated by a transparency collective called um, DDOS or Distributed Denial of Secrets. So there were about two dozen what they call radar reports and these were basically they had been stored um, and the radar reports are that's an acronym for Railway Awareness Daily Analytic Reports. Okay so for a couple of years getting back to McCulka, so kind of bear with me, McCulka and the articles that he prepared and, and, and wrote they were featured in, I last count, at least four separate radar reports, okay? And McCulka's friend found the documents um, a lot, just the same way The Intercept did through Blue Leaks, which is, again, that trove of documents, again, hacked uh, from these fusion centers and published by Distributed Denial of Secrets. So there were more than two dozen radar reports, and they had been stored by two fusion centers the Main Information and Analysis Center, and the Southeast Florida Fusion Center. Then there were dozens of extra security reports authored by the AAR, this private group. The Intercept had to also mention that these fusion centers refused to comment on any of this. So my question again is, why are the fusion centers seemingly taking their marching orders from trade groups such as the AAR? Aren't they supposed to be following the law? The radar reports are just another very obvious and poignant example how private industry and private security work so closely with public law enforcement agencies and coordinated through these fusion centers that basically it's almost an incestuous relationship with these private security contractors and trade groups really dictating to the actual police and the actual feds. And, you know, once again, my question is, with private business, you know, these intelligence hubs were created after 9-11. Again, the purpose of sharing information between security agencies and law enforcement. And then, with quote, with private businesses to share information about potential threats, end quote. Again, why should the taxpayer fund corporate Pinkertons? It's a perfectly legitimate question. So the Blue Leaks documents really provided the information that just clarified and, and proved a lot of activists suspected. Um, and so the AAR chose this really sensitive point in time to pass information about Justin Milkoka, this, this legitimate journalist, to law enforcement. And, you know, again, this report isn't just about environmental journalists. It's about journalists in general, all right, even though we're focusing on this one journalist. The Trump administration has made a point of targeting journalists, 
all right? Um, and this is something, you know, we know that DHS, Department of Homeland Security, has developed intelligence files on journalists, especially if they cover anti-racism protests, such as in Portland, Oregon. They also detain journalists covering the U.S.-Mexican border. DHS has also um, attacked, has also basically been behind these attacks and backed the attacks by local police in cities like Minneapolis and D.C., where there were protests in the wake of the George Floyd police murder. The Intercept made an inquiry about this, and the AAR just claimed that just because their bulletins are based on what they call open source material, that they're not intelligence reports. And the AAR spokesperson said, quote, radar is intended to keep industry and government partners apprised of trends and publish conversations surrounding safety and security issues both in the U.S. and abroad. The document does not provide or contain intelligence. Its content is drawn largely from widely available news reports, social media reports, posts, I'm sorry, and other online publications, end quote. Except for one thing, open source intelligence is widely recognized across both law enforcement and other uh, professional um, endeavors as, yeah, being drawn from this media. In fact, the CIA uh, was quoted that they define, quote, open source intelligence to include, quote, traditional mass media, the Internet, specialized journals, studies, conference proceedings, geospatial information, and more, end quote. So why go after Makulka? Well, Makulka turns out has been a fossil fuel critic, and now he's classified as a threat and by a politically driven, corporate-controlled police force. This is corruption on steroids, no doubt about it. And the railway industry is closely allied with fossil fuel. You know, the railway cars basically transport coal, for instance. So there was another radar report, and it also um, basically inferred that there were other environmental journalists that might pose a danger and that included a philanthropic group, Climate Emergency Fund, and that its board included um, the noted environmental journalist, Bill McKibben, I'm sorry, Bill McKibben, as well as David Wallace Wells. And there were additional documents, and these documents um, detailed uh, the many activities of fossil fuel opponents and groups such as Extinction Rebellion, the Sunrise Movement, Wild Idaho Rising Tide and the Anti-Bayou Bridge Pipeline, otherwise known as L'Eau-et-la-Vie Camp in, in Louisiana. We have to look at this and go, all right, this is crazy, right? This must be an anomaly. It's not. So the Intercept spoke to a couple of different uh, experts. They spoke to Brendan McQuaid, who is an author of the book, quote, Pacifying the Homeland Intelligence Fusion and Mass Supervision. And the documents where they basically uh, focus on Mikulka really show how these fusion centers truly act um, as a way to silence critics, critics of, the cor of any corporation. And, as a, and it affects these fusion centers. Um, you know, fusion centers are supposed to follow the law, but in, and they're not supposed to be basically doing the dirty work of corporate. 
and it is a type of political policing. And McQuaid said, you know, that it's political policing is different from what happened at the height of the 1960s civil rights movement when the FBI targeted many activists there because there's no systemic program like COINTELPRO that really wants to identify leaders and then eliminate them. Instead, what exists is this decentralized system that various corporate interests can manipulate and with practically zero accountability. And McQuaid said that uh, industry critics, um, these documents really serve as, he says they contain a message, I would say it's basically not so thinly veiled threat. Quote, there is an active, organized, powerful set of interests, state and corporate, that are out to defeat you politically. It needs to be acknowledged and it needs to be politicized, end quote. And I would say McQuaid is right. Um, it's a way of intimidating the press. Uh, and once again, McQuaid kind of implied about, you know, basically alluded to the climate crisis. And he said, quote, it's not hyperbole to say that the decisions being made now will decide whether humanity survives the 21st century. It's true. All right. And this is big money still. So now we're talking about privatized policing. Okay. And this really backs up the interest of fossil fuel and the rail industries because they've been closely, they work together. And according to AAR's own website, quote, coal has been the single most important commodity carried by U.S. railroads, end quote. Okay, and this has been going on since the 1800s. All right? Now you have a nearly incestuous relationship between police and the railroads. All right? Because they, collabor they say they collaborated with law enforcement. Um, I'd say this is corporate unduly uh, pressuring law enforcement to violate the law. Um, so once again, there's a mention of the Pinkertons. Um, so now let's talk about the origins of fusion centers because how did they get away with targeting an individual environmental journalist and really establish kind of not so thinly veiled threat? Well, again, the fusion centers took place, they were founded after 9-11. And this was at the same time that the climate movement was getting gaining some steam. And so we heard, not even before 9-11, tracing all the way back to the uh, Clinton administration, we heard this public-private partnership nonsense. All right? Make no mistake about it. Private enterprise is about profit, period. They are not about serving the public. And if there are two competing missions that should not be mingled, in my opinion, but that's what happened. And, you know, McQuaid basically was quoted saying, there's this alternate world, quote, of private intelligence centers. If you dig through Blue Leaks, it's plain, it's plain the way police and corporate security work together, end quote. So the AAR has a railway alert network. It functions quite a bit like a fusion center. Industry officials analyze their dubious intelligence. Uh, they come for these radar reports, and then a second type of bulletin called a RAND report, which focuses more on individual threats like Mr. Makoka. And then they distribute these reports to public officials as well as to railway co uh, companies. Again, this is undue influence on public officials through a corporation. There's nothing legal about this. So we've got this going on, and the Railway Association really 
they have a lot of power here, okay? Um, and there was, for instance, there was a 2018 radar report. And this shows how the AAR takes something that is truly trivial and elevates it to, a, 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 you know, code red danger when it's not. And so, for instance, there was, there was one radar report, and there was a small uh, anti-fracking organization that was local as the Western NY New York Drilling Defense. They were holding some meetings at a local community library. Um, and the report admitted the group had no plans to carry out civil disobedience against the railway industry, much less any sort of, you know, any sort of violence. The document, though, also included a note describing that Howie Hawkins, a Green Party candidate for the New York uh, gubernatorial race, um, had sh shown some concern about so-called bomb trains. These bomb trains were are trains that are loaded with explosive fuels like crude oil. And radar documents did mention protest actions in Germany and Australia. Um, and, you know, I guess you could turn it into a bomb. I don't know. But... The AAR spokesperson told The Intercept, quote, the rail industry supports responsible public discourse, legal assembly, and peaceful demonstrations to help draw attention to issues facing our nation and the globe, in this case, climate change. However, trespassing onto rail property for demonstrations creates safety and security risks, exposing the protesters and railroad workers to potentially serious injury or even death. Publicly reported information and online conversations about the potential for actions that present risk of this nature are included in the radar for awareness purposes, end quote. To me, this looks like corporate ordered defamation and censorship. And the radar documents in the Blue Leaves, Blue Leaves archive um, included reports from that summer of 2018 until 2020. And, um, you know, they make references to activists and, you know, once again, there is this, they imply that these people that are peaceful activists are somehow going to become violent. Then in July 2019, there was a report that the Climate Emergency Fund was listed. And this is, again, a philanthropic group. And they, by their own mention, they focus on, quote, nonviolent legal activities. And they help fund the activist group Extinction Rebellion. And, you know, once again, this document basically bemoaned the idea that fossil fuel opponents um, were basically saying we, that they, they won after prosecutors dropped charges against activists who had blocked construction of the Atlantic Coast natural, natural gas pipeline. Um, and the AAR, you know, is really behind, they really back these critical infrastructure protect, protection laws, which basically shut down protest. Um, so, you know, once again, you have this industry group that wants to make peaceable protests, nonviolent protests, look like they are doing something violent and that they are criminals, which they're not. So there was a May 2020 report that noted, um, quote, a key contributing factor. Of, well, here's what happened. There was this media coverage that the AAR was concerned about. and you know, whether or not the media portrayed these protest actions as, you know, socially acceptable or criminal. And the documents described in gory detail the train blockages in Canada. 
And those blockages were basically put together in solidarity with the Wet'suwet'en First Nation leaders um, who were working to stop the coastal gasoline pipeline. Um, and quote, to quote the May 2020 report, the post-blockade campaign progressively wound down in the latter part of February and early March. A key contributing factor was the shift in the tone and substance of media coverage, which highlighted the adverse impacts to small businesses and workers from halts in, the, in rail services. Um, you know, again, they want to control the media. That's what it is. They monitor journalists. Um, you know, again, one of Mikulka's, um articles was, the headline was, Bomb Trains, How Industry Greed and Regulatory Failure Put the Public at Risk. And that was in 2019. And, you know, again, this was, you know, an article that was sorely needed. It deals with public safety. Um, so, you know, once again, you have a private industry group that is trying to suppress and control the press. And the, the journalists they can't control, then they want to find a way to destroy them. There's nothing legal about any of this. Um, then you have this book. Okay. So there was... So there was a book that was received environmental services. Okay, and forgive forgive me, I got I lost this just now. So the censorship that's being pushed by the AAR is something that has crossed the line. It is not just them using their own opinions and pushing their own public relations. They are trying to basically push what law enforcement should be pursuing. Um, and then they look at Mikulka again, and one of the problems they have with him is that um, he also writes for a very famous environmental blog called the Desmog Blog. And Another radar report was quoted saying, quote, while Justin McCulka's writings have never been directly linked to specific direct actions targeting the rail industry, his dismog blog posts are frequently shared and commented on by activist groups primarily focused on opposing oil by rail. Okay. So McCulka's response was that railroad associations are willing to, quote, misrepresent the facts to the public to keep running these dangerous trains. They're willing to go very far to keep doing this. And so while they aren't calling McCulka out as a terrorist, they are more than implying that he is inciting terrorism, which he is not. He is, his crime is journalism. So once again, The Intercept, we're looking at this, we, we followed how Basically, Justin McCulka has been defamed and libeled and targeted by not only these fusion centers, but by these fusion centers upon demands made by, in this instance, the railway industry. So once again, from The Intercept, Aileen Brown wrote, quote, tilting at windmills, the FBI chased imagined echo activist enemies documents reveal. And this was just this past August. Again, federal and state law enforcement officers, they gathered in the Midwest, um, and they were, they were practicing, they had, they had this um, 
oh God, it was a practice response to a a threat that doesn't exist, namely wind farm sabotage. So they were they, they called it a red hat exercise. Right? Taxpayer dollars went for this where they pretended they had four teams, okay, um, and they pretended to be the bad guys, which are environmental saboteurs in their eyes. And they targeted these these grids of turbines that basically produce power from windmills. The FBI, uh, Omaha, Nebraska field office, and the Iowa Division of Intelligence and Fusion Center organized what they called this Red Hat organ Red Hat exercise. Now, here's the thing: there is no record of U.S. environmental saboteurs or activists using guns. But in this exercise, two of the teams suggested using firearms. This is really creating a bias in these officers' minds that environmental activists are dangerous. This is really not only dangerous, but why are we spending public dollars so the FBI can role play? Okay, I mean, why don't they just go to, you know, a sci-fi convention then? So, you know, again, the exercise, you think, what, what brought this on? Well, it was at the request of a U.S. BUS private energy sector partner, okay? And this was the idea that, you know, they had to protect oil pipelines, but instead they were talking about windmills, all right? Again, none of these private industry groups or companies were named in the reports, but they were involved in the exercise, among which was an Iowa utility company, a wind energy, wind energy lobbyist group, um, and an industry representative, and they were part of the teams posing as what they called an insider accomplice. You know, once again, this is setting the propaganda stage to see environmentalists and environmental journalists and journalists in general as the enemy. This is very dangerous. It's also illegitimate. This is an illegitimate use of taxpayer money and the police are supposed to follow the law, not abuse the law. So according to Blue Leaf, when they go a little further into this, they find that the documents in Blue Leaf, um, these law, these federal, state, and local law enforcement agencies, they've used the label environmental extremists to guide their, poli their policing. And that, once again, is it's it's driven by wild speculation, threat inflation. You've got the private sector encouraging this. This is basically inciting police into a, men into a military mentality and to view environmentalists and journalists in general as the threat. And they're calling them domestic extremists, right? Keep in mind, that category places indigenous people's environmental defenders with practically no property damage and just general civil disobedience in a category alongside white supremacists who conduct mass killings. Where is this reasonable? Where is this legitimate? It's obviously not. And, you know, once again, Mr. McQuaid, who is, uh, as I didn't say before, he's a sociologist at the University of Southern Maine, and he's the author of, again, Pacifying the Homeland, Intelligence, Fusion, and Mass Supervision. He said he had never seen anything like these Iowa Fusion Center documents in his life. To quote uh, 
Professor McQuaid, quote, it's paranoid threat inflation and a totally indefensible depolitization of what might be the most important political question of our time, which is, what are we going to do about climate change? This erases that question. Is anyone who is seriously committed worried about the way this will polarize the struggle and justify aggressive responses to direct action, he said. Now, we have another expert, uh, Mike German, and he is a National Security Fellow with the Brennan Center for Justice, and he also was formerly in another life an FBI agent. And he also stated that collaboration with these private security contractors really abuses public resources. To quote Mr. German, quote, there are many entities out there that are at a possible risk of some kind of criminal act, and yet you don't see community groups who are at a threat of white supremacy being invited by the FBI to talk about how they can protect themselves. They're spending security resources on hypothetical threats against favorite entities while ignoring real threats against other communities or private entities. So again, you have these two experts that are calling out these fusion centers and these industry, these industry groups. So the idea of environmental extremists goes further because it also goes straight into anybody who covers environmental stories, environmental stories that corporate doesn't like, okay? And that's what we're dealing with now. The, the amount of abuse here is just ridiculous. Um, you have Mr. German, again, a former FBI agent, uh, quoted as saying, we've had a variety of unruly protests by armed far-right malicious groups that the police react to in a very calm manner. And yet when you see a group of environmentalists or people who might look similar to the way environmentalists at a protest look, you see a hyper-aggressive police response, even though the level of violence coming from those groups is significantly lower, end quote. Now we have an instance where these same groups are comparing pipeline activists to Al-Qaeda. And you can't make this stuff up. There was one document, and um, basically it was, let's see now, <clears throat> they applied the lens uh, of Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan to community members that were opposing two natural gas pipelines in Virginia. So there was a September 2019 Virginia Fusion Center briefing, and the title of the report was Criminal Environmental Groups Study and Adopt Militant Insurgent Strategies to Advance Goals in Virginia. And, you know, again, there were some pipeline projects right in the midst of the, of the approval process going on at the same time. And there were a variety of activists at the same time, environmental experts, people that lived in the area, you know, they got together, they observed the construction, they filed lawsuits, they expressed their dissent at public meetings. Yes, they held uh, nonviolent protests, including a series of tree sits. And a tree sit, oh my, that's dangerous. This is where basically the opponents camped out in trees that are in the pipe, the pathway of the pipeline. That's it, they just sat in a tree. And this is what they consider dangerous. And then basically they, compare these people to Al-Qaeda. There is no, I have no words for this. So the idea of that comparison it is just ridiculous and it gets worse. Um, 
their pri- there were private security contractors, is another example, that claimed that criminal environmental groups provoked police dogs. So according to one document, there were some groups in North Dakota, and the private security contractors sicked their security dogs on these Dakota Access Pipeline opponents. And the the group, the security contractors claimed that these groups that were basically having the dogs attack them were provoking the dogs. Okay, this is not just a lie. It's an incredibly stupid lie. I, I This just gets so ridiculous you want to scream. Um, and then... This is, you've got these fusion centers, again, they're comparing environmental activists using boycotts and other financial tools, which are legal and legitimate, not just al-Qaeda now, but to bin Laden. So this is something where they are comparing it to bin Laden's goal of, quote, bleeding America to the point of bankruptcy. And then they say criminal environmental groups are doing the same thing. Well, since one is implementing boycotts, a criminal act. It's not. All right. And so then, you know, I guess the lawyers for some of these industry groups got nervous because all the while they're comparing these environmental activists and environmental journalists to Al-Qaeda and bin Laden, there's, you know, basically there's small print at the bottom of the fusion, there's one, for instance, fusion center doc that said, quote, this document is not designed to compare criminal environmental groups to Al-Qaeda and associated movements, even though that's exactly what it did. Um, and the report cited the book called The Accidental Gorilla uh, by this yeah, David Cullen, who was a counterinsurgency advisor to the U.S. during uh, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, again, this level of paranoia has to stop. And so, again, getting back to Mr. McQuaid, who's a sociologist, he explained the fusion center mentality, that this type of defamation and hyperbolic response, it's not an aberration, but an example of mentality that these fusion centers have and that that really endangers democracy itself. Um, And this is something, you know, that we have to consider. Um, You know, this is, I, you know, the, Mr. German, who was a former FBI agent, said that, um, you know, he explains that I would put myself in the place of a brand new police officer trying to protect his or her community and not having a deep background in terrorism research receiving this document. So he's trying to, Mr. German's trying to explain, you know, how these officers can basically misread these documents. And he went on to say, now anybody doing any activism in my community, I would automatically perceive as a threat not just a threat of engaging in civil disobedience or vandalism, but actually a terrorist threat, end quote. And that's the type of radical propaganda that transforms the police from justice officers to a dangerous threat against us all. So the Fusion Center spoke of the accidental guerrilla syndrome. Again, this is, it gets sillier. The Fusion Center um, basically felt threatened by the tree sitters. And in this instance, there was an incident in Giles County. Tree sitters um, were working with Appalachians Against Pipelines, and uh, they did a tree sit called Yellow Finch. It's been in place for two years. And to quote one of uh, the Fusion Center document, concluded, quote, if a tree sits 
If tree sits like these continue to develop, it may become more difficult for pipeline construction to continue and support for it may decrease, end quote. Well, so what? It's still not a crime. Um, tree sitter Dusty Pine Sap explains the threat of this defamatory language coming from fusion centers. They can compare us to Al-Qaeda. They can do anything to us. Um, last, I, last I checked, we never picked up a Kalishnikov. We tend to see property damage or denial of use of property of any sort or of danger or impeding of property rights is violent, end quote. And indeed, the document really does make crystal clear that the Fusion Center did conflate um, these tree sitters with terrorism. No doubt about it. So, you know, we're talking about this, and this is, um, you know, something that we have to really get in order here. So, you know, keep in mind, these fusion centers are publicly funded. So, and we just have this, this, con this conflation of, of missions. So, you know, Mr. German, again, former FBI agent, also pointed out the fact that these fusion centers that are really controlled by private industry, to quote him, many of these in other words, he's talking about these corporations are multinational corporations. They're not even necessarily U.S. corporations. That law enforcement seems to favor protecting them over our own communities. How many fusion center reports have we seen that document environmental damage done by criminal actions or negligent actions of corporations? Those are also criminal. Those are within the jurisdiction of these law enforcement agencies and arguably cost a whole lot more in economic damage to these communities than somebody turning a valve on a pipeline. Yet that's not where we see law enforcement resources being spent, end quote. Uh, I can't do better than that. Mr. German nailed it. And again, Mr. German isn't exactly a wild leftist, former FBI agent, and again, a scholar with the Brennan Center for Justice. He knows the law. So they have detailed journalists. They have, they have targeted journalists. They've targeted um, activists. And we're focusing on environmental activists, but we need to focus a little more on, on environmental journalists, but we also need to focus more on journalists in general. Because journal, journalists are supposed to bear witness to what's happening in government, in a society. And they are eyes and ears, and if they are silenced, then we have no proof to demand accountability or transparency. They provide the transparency they're supposed to. So, you know, there was an article in Al Jazeera titled, Are Police Targeting Journalists in U.S. Protests? Whether it's protests for Black Lives Matter or Expect Us or environmental issues, they are targeting journalists. And dozens of journalists have said, yes, they've been targeted, especially covering the George Floyd protests. Um, and give you some examples, photojournalist Linda Torado was permanently blinded in her left eye after she was shot in the face with a rubber bullet. Two journalists from Reuters, which is mainstream, were also hit by rubber bullets. And they say the officer aimed directly at them. There was no mistake. Um, open source investigators, Bellingcat, said they identified at least 50 incidents where journalists were attacked by law enforcement. And in most instances, the journalists were wearing some sort of designation, very, very broad, just as press. Um, Molly Hennessy Fisk, an LA Times journalist, was quoted saying, quote, we identified ourselves as press, 
They fired tear gas canisters on us at point-blank range. I got hit in the leg. So the Committee to Protect Journalists is investigating the attacks on journalists by police and allegedly protesters. And they were quoted, the Committee to Protect Journalists um, spokesperson Carlos Motinas de la Serna uh, was quoted saying, targeted attacks on journalists, media crews, and news organizations covering the demonstrations show a complete disregard for their critical role in documenting interests of public interest and are an unacceptable attempt to intimidate them. Okay, so all over the USA, members of the press, including Fox, are being brutally attacked by the police, and it's become routine since Ferguson, so the occurrence increased under Trump. Though this report dealt with the police profiling environmental journalists who challenged the corporate line and the corporate-owned media stenography of the day, this issue <clears throat> excuse me, delves deeper, delves into a deeper danger, namely that of corporate-sponsored censorship enforced through the barrel of a police revolver. The ACLU has been mobilizing to hold police accountable. So police, uh, one ACLU uh, document saying police are attacking journalists to protest, we're suing because this was a clear violation of First Amendment. Um, and, and they also document, like in Minnesota, they're suing. Um, and they're plan this is a violation of First Amendment rights. Um, and there have been numerous well-documented instances of deliberate abuse targeting journalists by police. Uh, there was a Minnesota State Patrol officer who arrested CNN correspondent Omar Jimenez and his crew during a live broadcast. LA Times, we mentioned Molly Hennessy Fisk and photographer Carolyn Cole were chased by Minnesota State Patrol officers. They were tear gassed. Um, they were shot with rubber bullets and they were clearly wearing press credentials and they identified themselves. Um, police officer pepper sprayed a group of, visibly, of, of credentialed journalists. Um, and there's more, okay? And this is reported by the Reporters Committee for the Freedom of the Press and the U.S. Press Freedom Tracker. And so we're seeing this all over the country. There is nothing new. You would think that this is a third world nation or communist Russia. And so there was this one uh, policing the press of journalists on the front lines. Jared Goya is the plaintiff in an ACLU uh, lawsuit that's pushing for justice for journalists. Um, so you know, again, journalists are facing basically violence, suppression tactics, and arrest by police. Um, and these these abuses have included, again, being assaulted with pepper spray, rubber bullets, uh, their equipment damaged, they face arrest. Um, and Goyette said, quote, there's always been a degree of tension between police protesters and media. Uh, and, you know, we understand that, but it doesn't change the situation. And so now the ACLU is also speaking up about the constitutional crisis in Portland where Trump sent federal agents, okay? Uh, once again, uh, there was a federal court on July 23rd. They issued a temporary restraining order blocking federal agents in Portland from attacking or arresting journalists or legal observers. Um, you know, once again, this is the police are acting as a military invasion force. You would think it was Fallujah and not Portland, Oregon. And this is something that we have to we have to deal with, okay? And, and these militarized federal agents, they are often disobeying court orders, protecting the rights of protesters or the rights of journalists. Um, some of the tactics they use, they use sharpshooters to maim people. 
It deployed military tools and tactics. They used sonic weapons and tear gas. There have been Black Lives Matter protests in Portland shot in the head with what are called kinetic impact munitions. They've been kidnapped in unmarked cars. And then there's a couple other delightful little things, such as um, the LRAD, which produces a very uh, loud noise that it's painful. It actually can cause permanent um, hearing loss. So now we're looking at this and we're, excuse me. Oh boy. I did sneeze. Okay. So this is something that has gotten out of hand. And of course, Donald Trump loves it. What And, and again, when you look at groups like the tracker, right now there is this false narrative that journalists, quote, are being attacked by police and protesters alike. According to the tracker, that's a false narrative, that approximately over 80% of these attacks are actually committed by police, not by protesters. But again, they have to try and dirty the, the protesters. So why would police attack journalists? To eradicate any witnesses to police criminality, that's why. So this is an instance where we have to deal with this. There was a, an NPR segment, multiple journalists um, described several things. So, for instance, Molly Hennessy Fisk again from the LA Times said, we were not caught in the crossfire. They pursued us, and they knew we were reporters and photographers. Okay? Um, you know, so once again, this is nothing... It's not an anomaly. This is planned. There's so much more information, but we're coming to the end of the show. In conclusion, you know, we have to look at the fact that the police are not only militarized, militarized and out of control from the past two decades, but we've had uh, basically the erasure of our civil rights. So in conclusion, this story isn't merely about police brutality aimed at journalists and protesters. Rather, the story is about the systemic abdication of responsibility by multiple presidents and the Congress whenever the subject dealt with holding police accountable. For the past 19 years, under the auspices of 9-11, the American public has been spoon-fed an intellectual pablum that safety and security require we relinquish our constitutional rights and yield to a militarized police state directed by what can only be called an illegitimate witch's brew of corporate and state actors. This began under George W. Bush and continued during the Obama administration on through the present to the present insane days of Donald Trump and his, his criminal attorney general, Bill Barr. This evolution did not happen by osmosis. It followed a very straightforward trajectory of premeditated administrative neglect when it came to holding police accountable. When first taking office, for example, President Obama refused to hold the previous George W. Bush administration accountable for it can only be considered as crimes against humanity, including torture. In the face of these accusations and a multitude of evidence that proving that Bush had committed these crimes in our names, Obama labored to make this decision poetic by claiming that he preferred, quote, looking forward, not backwards, end quote. Now, it was this singular decision that gave a signal to the oligarchic class and the police that any abuse, any crime against humanity was permissible. But Obama was a 
a PR professional's wet dream. He could distract the public beautifully for the oligarchy. Everyone had a new sense of hope. Then came Ferguson. Ferguson produced a tepid response from the Obama administration. His president didn't want to be seen as the president for black America, but for all of us. Even as a U.S. senator in Osor, Obama tried the colorblind bromide used by closet racists to want to sweep the obvious crime of racism under the rug. To quote from the 2004 uh, DNC convention, which propelled Barack Obama to the public eye, quote, there's not a black America and white America and Latino America and Asian America. There's the United States of America, quote, declared Barack Obama in that Democratic convention keynote speech in 2004, quote, we are one people, all of us pledging allegiance to the stars and stripes defending the United States of America. Pretty yet tone-deaf speeches aside, when it came to constitutional violations and police brutality, the Obama administration waited too long and did too little to hold police accountable for the crimes of Ferguson. Brutal attacks were waged by police against protesters and journalists alike. I know, I was there. So it should be no small shock the police have been emboldened thanks to an openly fascist Trump administration, and the attacks on protesters and journalists cannot be separated from the specific attacks on environmental groups and environmental journalists. This is where we are today. Our Bill of Rights is in shreds as police behave more like Hitler's brown-shirted thugs than officers of the law. Corporate-owned media has long been since been cowed into obedient submission. Trump himself, the man who has told thousands of documented fact-checked lies, since he began office, openly uses the, coin, the term, term coined by the Nazis, the Lugan press, or lying press, and Trump's childish language, it is fake news. Now as a people who believe in democracy and human rights for all, we must continue to fight for an actual democracy, one we do not presently possess. And as journalists, we must continue to serve witness to the facts and speak truth to power, no matter the cost. And that's our environmental justice report for tonight, I'm Janine Moloff. We're about to sign off. There will be more to come. Please tune in to us again. We are going to continue to bring the information to you and demand truth to power. So for tonight, I say good night, stay strong.